Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Brian Kaczynski. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 208. Brian Kaczynski earned his Master's of Science in Electrical Engineering from Stanford University in 2001 and has worked since 1999 as a mixed signal RF ASIC designer, focusing mainly on LAN applications such as Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, USB, etc. His passion for music and desire to bridge the gap between acoustic electric instruments and music synthesizers, both analog and digital, inspire his current work. Thank you, Brian, for coming onto our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, actually, two episodes ago, episode 206, uh, in our RFO section, we'd actually kind of spoke a little bit about one of the chips that you designed, the ACO160. And at that time, I was like, you know what? I've got this guy's email. Let's let's reach out and see if, he, uh, if he'd be willing to come on as a guest. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Okay. Steven's totally not creeping on you. <laughs> not, not at all, not at now all. Now I have to check out the old podcast because I wasn't aware that it was mentioned on a, on a podcast. Well, so I had actually met Brian uh, a few months ago at KnobCon out in, um, gosh, where was that? That was Ve not, no, Chicago. That was Chicago. I was thinking Vegas. I went to Vegas yeah. for... Out near, out near O'Hare Airport. Right, right, and uh, and actually months before that, I had uh, received some uh, some data sheets about this IC uh, and kind of some upcoming stuff about it. So um, yeah, that was it, it was really interesting. And so Brian, you're with uh, or your company is Second Sound, right? Yeah, well, I am Second Sound. It's just a one person company, um, and it's basically uh, like an IP provider. So. It's uh, based on my work is based on the pitch tracking algorithm that I envisioned and am using to convert audio to CV for controlling analog synths and MIDI for controlling digital synths. So a uh, second sound, um, well, just being you, uh, is you, you've actually created hardware or hard ICs that that incorporate this algorithm, which does pitch detection and converts to CV, right? Yeah, well, the ICs are are big, like mixed analog and digital ICs. So, you know, part of it is, I wouldn't know if it's correct to call it an algorithm. It's sort of based on, based on, um, you know, my experience designing clock generators and, and uh, RF synthesizers and PLLs. Um, PLLs sort of it's a basic building block in communications circuits. And I used a lot of my expertise from that world to, to design kind of a, a audio music synthesizer circuit chip. So uh, where does the uh, name Second Sound come from? Um, it's actually, Second Sound is actually like a real physical phenomenon um, in low temperature physics. Uh, this probably is gonna sound, sound like it's coming out of left field, but I majored in physics in my undergrad and um, I did a low temperature physics lab and it's a, a phenomenon that happens with liquid helium. Uh, when it gets, liquid helium can be a, a superfluid, which means it has no viscosity. And if you have like a little chamber with partially liquid, partially superfluid helium and partially non-superfluid helium, it's like two states of matter and you can get waves where like the the two 
different kinds of helium are kind of oscillating. Um, and you can measure the speed of that, and that's called second sound. And I just like the way it sounded too. And I figured it's not really trademarkable uh, because <laughs> of the, the physical phenomenon has been around for so long. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to offer a new way to make sound for people. So, you know, people like to play their traditional instruments. Um, you know, people that aren't keyboard players, singers, guitarists, violinists, all want to be able to control synthesizers for their instruments. And uh, I, I've spoken to so many people who see what I'm doing and they try their instrument with it and they say, oh, I've been looking for something like this for, for 10 years or even 20 years. And uh, there, there are, of course, it's not anything totally new. There's been pitch tracking technologies before, but I think they're usually like really heavily targeted for guitar or for a particular instrument. And a lot of other, even some guitarists say that they don't like the way that it sounds or, and other, other instrumentalists just say that they feel like totally, totally passed over by that technology. You would be talking about like a wah-wah pedal. No, or is a, a talk box? A wah wah pedal is is a really basic thing. It's like it's like a filter, usually low pass, I guess, where you modulate the filter cutoff with the with the pedal okay. position. So that's even you can even make a passive wah pedal. It's it's like one of the simpler simpler kind of effects out there. Um, the uh, this what I what I've done is really like generating a, a synthesizer voice based on the audio that comes in. So it has an independent oscillator inside it, and uh, you know some VCA. Um, the newer version that I made has a VCF as well. That but that's that's getting into the firmware version with on the on a microcontroller. If we're talking about the chips, then uh, that ACO one hundred and sixty. That uh, it basically has its own synthesizer voice. It has a, si a sine wave, a square wave, and sawtooth wave that are tracking the frequency of the audio coming in. You know, you know, I think it's uh, it's worth doing uh, taking one quick step back and kind of mentioning where or how this is uh, special, because. Um, in in most synthesizers, there's a control voltage that comes in, and that that can be a DC voltage or it could be anything, and and that voltage is mapped to an output frequency. So your technology here takes some instrument that's already producing a pitch, and converts that back to a control voltage that you can then use to control another synthesizer. So you're going from a pitch to a control voltage, and then a control voltage back to a pitch, right? Yeah, well, that's if you choose to use that control voltage to control a synth using, you know, interpreting it as a frequency. So that converting that pitch to CV is one thing that it does. So, so you know, one of the, one of the things that's that is interesting is uh, the idea that you're using something that oscillates to control another thing that oscillates. Because, so take for instance, there's a lot of, like you mentioned, guitarists that that want to 
I guess you could say synthify their guitar sound. And in in electronics, there's a lot of methods to do that in terms of modifying and shaping the waves. But with this technology, you're just picking up the frequency and then convert and then using that to produce another frequency. So you don't have to brutalize the wave. You just use its information. Yeah. In fact, you don't even care what the wave looks like. The only thing, the only information you're getting from it is the frequency. Hmm. Or, or period. Period is the same. Um, and the amplitude. So it's just extracting the pitch and the amplitude. And they, the nice thing about the chip is that the the um, the frequency that it produced was perfectly in tune with with the uh, audio input. So it's it's uh, it's basically something called a frequency locked loop. It generates, it measures the frequency coming in and it sort of locks the frequency of the of its own oscillator to that so you have no no um like tuning error in the in the wave that comes out so your ACO 100 IC was your first kind of go round at this right yeah so that chip i developed when i was working in poland for a company sonic smith and they have uh they have what's what we called audio-controlled synthesizers, which used that chip. Um, they were like a kind of sound box type form factors um, with synth functions like a VCF, um, sub-oscillators, PWM, um, envelope generator, and all kinds of other basic blocks. And uh, I wanted to stop developing those end-user products and just concentrate on on like what I knew best, which was the uh, the chip and the kind of underlying technology behind it. Because I, I didn't want to, I got tired of making all these decisions, like what, how do customers want to patch these things? That's why there's hundreds of analog synths out there, because there's like literally millions of ways you can patch them. And there's, if you design a product, you're automatically making some decisions on what the customer is going to want to do. And so many people are like, can you just bring all these patch points out and make all of these, you know, people just want to be able to do anything. And you're, you got, you guys know, cause you work in this field a little bit, you're, you know, you're like, okay, well, like it can, it can cost a thousand dollars. And they're like, no, they want it for a hundred dollars and they want to be able to do every patch every single combination of things that you can do and have knobs to control everything and presets would be really fantastic too so, so, and i was like finally i was like i'd have had it with that <laughs> i'm just gonna do i'm gonna do what i do best and try to provide it as a service to people yeah but, but you're also going into you know you're talking to two hardware engineers here where like i've definitely complained to companies where I'm like, hey, your pinout sucks on your part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, go, it goes all the way down to the chip level, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I also do PCB layout, and I I uh, did all the layout on my chip, which is kind of like a, a little micro, doing like a little micro universe of what's on the PCB, and it's much bigger and many more more uh, wires and components and connections. So to me, PCB layout, like I find it really relaxing and, and nice. And I, I never really had a, 
issue where I thought, oh, this is like impossible to lay out or something. It's like if you lay out something with tens of thousands of components and 100,000 wires, and then you're like, and four layers of metal, it's, it's like, then you really have to be careful what goes all where and how everything's connected. Is is that the number that you did? It's around that. It was something like 50,000 or on the order of 50,000 nets in that chip. Wow. Uh, I don't have an exact count, but I mean, in, in my industry work, I've worked on on chips with millions of nets, but in analog circuits, we're usually on the order of 10,000 because there you have, you know, you're doing things like amplifiers and, and, um, uh, you know, a PLL is probably the most complicated thing that you do over there. Well, I'd love to get into the uh, the layout stuff, but uh, I think we'll do that a little bit later because I would uh, first love to just talk about the technology behind um, the actual pitch detection. And uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing, like, what is actually happening under the hood with that? Well, in the earlier chip, the ACO100, it was sort of a threshold-based pitch detection. So um, I filtered the input. I low-pass filtered the input. And um, that was that just went through a threshold detector. So you had a high threshold and a low threshold to give you hysteresis. Uh, that gave you some rejection of noise and, and, uh, and errors in the pitch tracking. And then on top of that, um, we had a... Um, the pitch CV output, and we use that in a feedback loop to control to control that low pass filter that I was talking about. So it was kind of a special filter. It had like a it had a low it had sort of a if if it was locked, then you were kind of on the part of a low pass filter that was that was falling, and then it it went to a shelf where where the attenuation reached a certain level and just stayed there. And on the low on the low side. It, there was there was gain. So basically, if you if your frequency was too low, um, then if the let's say the low pass filter was tuned too low, then uh, at least you're guaranteed to have some signal coming out because the the filter flattened out in the pass in the stop band. Um, if the filter was tuned too high, then it would it would kind of just like uh, track down close to the right area and even if the second harmonic if it couldn't track to the second harmonic because the uh if it did then the first harmonic would be at two times the lower frequency or the fundamental that is and we had gain there so it would it would boost the gain up on that and that worked pretty well um but any kind of approach like that with a feedback loop and a filter it has issues with transient response so if you, especially if you want it to work with low frequency instruments, like if you play bass with it or something, it's going to track down and then that filter is going to take some time to recover and move around to an, the new frequency if you play a new note. Um, so in the ACO 160 that I designed later, I tried to overcome that by not using any filtering at all. And instead, I use this double peak detector approach where I have peak detectors on the positive and negative peaks. And uh, detecting a cycle requires detecting a positive peak, followed by a negative peak, and then another positive peak. 
And the the innovation there was that the time, the delay, the decay time of the of the peak detector was uh, proportional to the period. So as the period gets longer, the decay time gets longer too. So basically, it's rejecting the same kind of content in the in the waveform, no matter what frequency you're you're playing into it. Hmm. In in that, I'm I guess I'm a little bit uh, a little bit curious about how that doesn't latch on to harmonics, how it how it kind of uh, rejects that and sticks to the fundamental. Well, if you look at a waveform, even with a lot of harmonics, um, if you look at kind of the maximum peaks, the maximum peaks of the signal always correspond to the fundamental. Uh, what happens if you have harmonics is that you'll have secondary peaks below below that maximum level. And depending on how much you let the peak detectors decay, it will reject those harmonics up to a certain point. Of course, you can always give it like a signal with second harmonic 100 dB higher than the fundamental, and then it will probably <laughs> it'll probably fail to work on that. But that's not very common in music signals. You right. can always break any system. There, there's always a way, you know, you can always, if you know how it works, you can construct a signal that will break it. Yeah, but uh, in, uh, in the audio world, the second harmonic is never, you know, a higher peak. So it's, yeah. for its application, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, so some people talk to me about what they call the missing fundamental problem, where you have a second and third harmonic, but you have no fundamental. So that can actually happen. Uh, fundamental can be can be non-existent, but still, even in that case, you see the peaks. If you if you track the maximum peaks, then they they follow the fundamental. They they allow you to recreate that fundamental. Hmm. I, that uh, that kind of reminds me of uh, signals classes and all the all that like fundamental math that goes behind it that allows you to reconstruct things like that. Those were uh, those were not fun classes. I remember. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about Fourier transforms. So <laughs> well, and I, I've I've certainly seen that before. Um, you know, take take sample a chunk of of signal, take the FFT, and then do some some algorithm to pick the fundamental, and then you kind of get that information. But that's a really slow uh, yeah. way method of doing it. I don't like that method because basically depending on the lowest frequency you want to detect, that sets the window of the FFT. So if you want to detect down to 30 hertz, then the window has to be 30 milliseconds. And certainly you're going to hear 30 milliseconds latency, or even if it's like half of that, 15 milliseconds, I'm not sure what exactly the latency is, but you will hear it. Right, right. What is the uh, the latency of your uh, system? It's basically one cycle. So... It depends on the frequency you play. If you play 30 hertz, it'll be it will be 30 uh, milliseconds. If you play a kilohertz, it will be one millisecond. Hmm. Uh, but sort of psychoacoustics uh, teach that the latency that we can tolerate is actually proportional to the period of the audio. Uh, that's something that not many people have studied um, because most people, when they do latency experiments, they don't. Uh, they don't pay that much attention to how it how it depends on frequency. Um, but I was uh, I was at AES convention this year in March uh, in Dublin last year I guess now, um, 
and I spoke for a long time with with a with a like a leading figure in in the frequency in the pitch detection field, and and uh, she knew a lot about this and explained that that uh, there was like one study out of many many that that studied the the uh, impact of pitch of uh, frequency on latency that we can tolerate. Hmm. Well, and 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 like you said, the it's it's always one cycle, right? Or best case, it's, it's, it's around. Cycle. It's around. Yeah, the latency for my pitch detection is one cycle, um, and the latency that we can tolerate is around one cycle. I don't want to say like exactly one cycle, but it's it's that order of magnitude, because our ears can't really detect a pitch anyway until it's here. They've heard one cycle of it. Uh, it's sort of like our ears are kind of like a Fourier transform themselves, um, physiologically. Sounds like uh, it could have uh, a lot of applications outside the audio world with uh, like uh, tracking filters and um, you know uh, frequency detection and and well even back in like the audio world like uh, faster tuners. I know a lot of tuners that I have have a very noticeable latency before they pick up uh, your yeah, actual yeah. tone. Yeah, yeah wasn't that be. one of your uh... It was one of your projects, right, Stephen? In college, uh, yeah, I had a I had a, a math class called Waves and Wavelets, and uh, uh, yeah. it was it was all the math behind the FFT, and that that class was actually really really awesome, uh, and and yeah, for one of the projects, I I made a um I made a guitar tuner, but I but I basically just did the FFT and then put it in an array and sorted everything and found the highest one and said, uh -huh. that's my fundamental. And, huh. and I got, you know, it was close enough for guitar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> close enough for the person grading it, right? I close enough to get me an A. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually on, on that project, I actually did build like an entire GUI and I, I, put my computer up in front of the class and like had like a graphical thing that would show like if you're sharp or flat or or you know spot on and stuff so that was fun but it yeah, seems like I, it seems like if it was all done in hardware with this ic like that would have been like well, you just automatically get an a in the entire class now the, yeah okay if you that would work if you want to spend several years designing an ic <laughs> yeah here's a master's <laughs> that would that would be a big uh labor of love for a class oh for sure so uh your so your first ic is was the aco 100 but you've moved on from that to the aco 160 uh which you've mentioned a handful of times uh you want to kind of give like a, a description of what's different between those so so before we get into the super technical actual stuff yeah is, was there 60 versions of the, or 59 versions of this chip before? <laughs> no, there were not that many. There were two versions of the ACO 160. I just wanted to make a big increment. I don't even remember where I pulled that number from, 160. I think I just thought it sounded good. <laughs> Product design 101. It just sounds yes. good. <laughs> yeah. So 100 was the first one. Once For the 160, it's pretty simple to describe. I just tried to integrate a lot of the features that were off chip in the earlier version, like that tracking filter. I wanted to get rid of the tracking filter and make it or make it unnecessary. Um, I added also uh, envelope detector. So it has an envelope follower built into the chip instead of having to do that with diodes and op amps like we usually do. Um, and it works totally differently. That envelope follower is, 
is like a, is more like a sampling. It uses sampling and some digital filtering, not digital filtering. It uses switch capacitor filtering, which is like discrete time filtering instead of continuous time. Um, so what else? It, it, um, I think the sign, yeah, the sine wave generator was new. I didn't have the sine wave in the ACO 100. So I wanted to see how good of a sine wave I could generate with, with, uh, like in a, in a integrated circuit. Just out of curiosity, uh, what was your method of, of creating a sine wave? Okay. That's interesting. I think so it, uh, basically there, the, uh, the internal oscillator on that chip runs runs um, eight eight thousand one hundred ninety two times faster than the audio, and that number is there's a reason for that number. It's two to the power of thirteen. So in in um, in engineering we like to work in powers of two. It's, it's no coincidence. It's easy to make uh, like uh, clock dividers that are dividing by powers of two. Um, so that Chip also has a harmony feature where you can tune like to different intervals offset from the the unison. It can go from minus two to plus two octaves, and it has like a eight notes it can hit on kind of a just intonation scale between the octaves. Um, and to do that, I I generated um, basically a divided down clock, which is divided down by just some integer related to that really fast 8,000 something times clock. Um, and the net result is that you get a lower frequency clock that's roughly 128 times faster than the audio, but it varies because it's it's a harmony. So it varies from, from basically, uh, basically 32 times to 512 times faster than the audio. And then that's used uh, to clock a DAC, uh, which goes through 128 cycles, um, which you're you're probably used to thinking the 128 is seven bits. So for the the uh, the sawtooth wave, it just goes through a a staircase basically of 128 levels. Um, and for the sine wave, it goes through a cycle of 128 values. And I designed sort of a a sine a, a special sine wave DAC, which which uh, generates exactly like points close to the sine wave all the way around one cycle. So it's kind of like an analog wave table, actually, if you want to think of it like that. Is, was it just kind of like a built-in ROM that had values? No, it's it's totally analog. So it uses a big resistor divider, and the points on the resistor divider just correspond to those voltages on that sine wave. Oh, that must have been uh, fun to calculate. And I used uh, I used basically resistors all of the same size. So, for example, I wanted if you want a really small resistor, you put twenty of them in parallel, and then you know for any other value you want, you can use parallel and series combinations. And it's something like it's it's a lot of math, and it looks really hairy when you try to put it all together. And then especially if you want to generate one hundred twenty eight levels, but the nice thing is that in an IC, you can do things like that and it ends up being really small because a resistor is like two microns by by eight microns or something, let's say, um, which is, I mean, a micron is one thousandth of a millimeter. So it's it's like nothing really. It's like a 
smaller than a human hair. And so are the, I guess the resistors then are, are they just different, slightly different trace or trace widths inside the IC then? Or is it, are they, are they different doped materials or? Resistors, that's, uh, they use uh, polysilicon. So, you know, in terms of what physically are the resistors, they're not metal. They're, they're using the same material that's used for the gates of the transistors. Okay. And they are, they are, uh. It depends like what resistance you want. Um, you can get something that gives you typically like a thousand ohms per square, which means if you have, you know, two microns by two microns, if it's a square, the resistance of it will be around a thousand ohms. That's typical. I mean, it varies from 200 to, to 2000, maybe depending on the process. You know, okay, let's, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. How do you control that as the designer? If you have an IC and you say, I want it to be 1K instead of 1K-ish, uh, what, what, what knobs do you have to turn to be able to control that? Well, usually we just don't worry about it. Uh, they say that, it can, <laughs> they say that it, can vary, it can vary by plus or minus 15%. It's, it's around 15%. And usually you just do the design so that you don't care about something that small because uh, – for a DAC, for example, a resistor DAC, it's like a it's like a big voltage divider. The voltage at the top, you know, because it's some it's you can make a reference, and we know how to make pretty accurate references. Or you use the supply voltage or something like that. The bottom can be ground, which is zero volts, as most people know. And because the only thing determining the voltages on the on the resistor divider are the ratios between the resistors, and the good thing about ICs is that even if the, the the resistivity of that material isn't well controlled, the ratio is generally very well controlled. So you can that's that's how we design accurate things basically with ICs. Um, Just don't 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 uh, your design shouldn't care about the absolute value. That's right. Yeah, you can make you can double an analog voltage by making a invert a non-inverting op amp circuit with a voltage divider where the resistors are integrated and it will be pretty close to two times the voltage or, you know, and just expand that to any ratio and you can generate any voltage you want, really. I want to guess that's because when they put down the resistors, I say put down, when they do the masking for the resistor part, that all gets applied at once so that your material is all the same, but the absolute... I don't want to say doping because I don't know what the process is of like making that poly. What was it? Uh, polysilicon. Polysilicon, like how, like when they lay that down. Um, yeah, usually the what makes it higher or lower is is uh, etching. So sometimes it can be etched too much, and then the resistor gets narrower than you expect, or etched too little. Um, okay. I don't. It is uh, some of them are doped, some of them aren't. So. You can have you know different doping. The doping can be slightly higher or lower. Um, there's there's N type and P type polysilicon, so the numbers can be different depending on what which one you use. Just as long as it's not strays too low, <laughs> and then you have fuses. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, you know they they guarantee that it will be within a certain limits, and generally if you track 
you know, if you measure them over many, many lots of an IC, usually they come out much, much more accurate than the fab wants to guarantee it. It's because like, it's like anything when you're man in manufacturing, you guarantee something, you're going to pad that. You're going to pad that like a couple of percent out, uh, if not 10%, you know, I don't know. So we, we don't really see silicon that varies as much as the fabs say that it can. But you don't want to depend on that either, because someday maybe it will come out high or low. Yeah, someone will sneeze on it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, so you also have some development boards uh, that you offer for these uh, the ACO 100 and 160, right? Uh, right now, just for the 160. The, the ACO 100, I have, uh, like, we went to production with that chip, and so I have chips... Uh, available that I could sell, uh, but I didn't make an evaluation board for it. Oh, okay. Um, basically, some people have asked. I've received emails asking if I'm selling that, and I and I deal with those on a case by case basis. I try to figure out what that person wants to do, or thinks they want to do with it, and uh, you know, then explain how it works, send a data sheet, and um, it's it's not like. It's not something that I would expect to be like a cash cow business for me because that chip is older. And although you can do some cool things with it, it has its own characteristics. And some people might be interested in the way it malfunctions versus something that works more, more reliably, quote unquote. So, you know, experimental, uh, like experimentalists want all kinds of things and, they don't necessarily want something that's going to be perfect. Sure, sure. So you have to know how to design imperfection into it. Yeah. So the I have an evaluation board now for the ACO 160. Um, I have a few. So I, I made, um, for the chip, I made an evaluation board um, and I sampled a bunch of them out. I sampled about, I had about 25 and a lot of them went to musicians. Some of them I sold. Uh, and a couple months later, I don't know if you want to get into this topic now yet, but I decided to try to make a fully digital version of it. So I, I thought, you know, instead of designing this chip, which takes a huge amount of resources and time, and it can have bugs, if it has bugs, then you have to fix it or just tell everybody, I'm sorry, I tried to make this chip, but it doesn't work like I wanted. Um, That's what a rata of, data sheets are for. Yeah. Instead of, <laughs> instead of that, I thought, what if I could make a digital emulation of the chip in something like a microcontroller? And what if it worked just as well or even better than that chip? I thought, well, it would be kind of sad because I spent so many years of my life making these chips. But on the other hand, if it's possible to do... I better be the one that does it because otherwise <laughs> uh, somebody else will do it and say, Hey, we've got these things that work better than the ACO 160. You don't have to, you don't have to risk buying custom silicon that somebody, you know, a one person team has to test. Uh, Cause the, to honestly, the hardest part about designing chips is, is production and testing. Cause if like, even if one out of, 10 chips is bad. If you make a thousand of them, then you got to test a thousand chips to throw out the, uh, the hundred chips that are bad. And, uh, 
that's something that I never got into. And I was always kind of the back in the back of my mind worried if I go into chip production, how am I going to do this production test? And uh, I thought, you know, if I can use off the shelf microcontroller or something equivalent, then those are already tested. They're already like two bucks in volume. So what am I, what am I doing my, with my life? You know, <laughs> what have I been doing? <laughs> So, so you're implementing this in firmware now? Yeah, so now we have firmware that is basically an emulation of the ACO160. And uh, most of the evaluation boards I have now, I call the DACO160, because uh, it's digital ACO. Um, and uh, those are the ones I'm promoting most now. Uh, that's what I'm providing manufacturers and uh, selling some to... to to musicians, hobbyists, um, demoing them to to people that that uh, produce video content that I can use to help promote it. So I'm looking at your website, and I'm noticing some of the boards have a a uh, a quad pack socket on it that has looks like your chip on it. Yes, the, that's got a clear have, top on it. Yeah, it's gold. Or let me see. Let me try to find that. Um, so if you go to ACO160 EVK page, that has, ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So here, the picture that was taken had the, the cover removed. So you can see right into the chip on some of these pictures. Um, that's a test. Those are test chips. They're, they were made just for as a prototype, uh, and I made about 50 of them. Um, in production, you never see something like that because chips are always encapsulated in black plastic. Hmm. Yeah, that's for because um, photons hitting it will cause all sorts of craziness. Well, I found that they didn't. Uh, I I found that I could put this under a bright light and it had no impact whatsoever on the performance. I always heard, you know, yeah, photons it'll make like the PN junctions leak. Um, not not true in this. So maybe in this process, the I don't know why it's like that, but. Uh, it it had very little difference in performance whether the lid was on it or not. Hmm. Or just sounded cooler. So if anyone wants to see it, the website is uh, secondsound.com, and you can go over to the uh, ACO160 EVK product page. Yeah, and all of the all of the products are under under products. You can find uh, right now all four of them. So I have product pages for the ACO100, 160, and the two EVKs. Uh, which are using the ACO160 chip and are using this digital version we're talking about with the microcontroller. I, I, I love your website, by the way, because your product pages have um, like flow diagrams on them and, and like oh, system yeah. diagrams, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I'm from an engineering background, I thought, what are what do people want to know when they look at this? Right, like who's going to visit this site? Yeah. That's what they want to so see. I try to provide that and like some audio demos because I, you know, I'm trying to cover what I, th what I think all the people that are going to look at it, what they will want to see. Yeah. Uh, speaking of audio demos, uh, you you have something uh, that uh, you can uh, show us, right? Yes. Yeah, so I can. You can at least hear an audio demo. Um, what I have is I have my voice controlling the uh, Behringer Model D via the uh, pitch, the, the pitch CV, envelope CV, and gate CV. So I have envelope. This is my favorite way to patch it. You can't really see it, but I patch it in a way that 
the this, the uh, Model D responds most organically to my voice, so it really follows the envelope, and I I don't use any of the envelope generator that's built into it. I just let it follow what I'm doing. So so this is your voice going into a microphone, and then that controlling multiple aspects of yeah, the synthesizer. That's right. So I have the microphone here. Um, I'll turn up the volume on the Model D. So. <laughs> I can I can do some feedback here if you want. Yeah. Wait. Oh wow that 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 sounds like uh, uh, that sounds really aliased. It, yeah. So yeah, because what's happening there is that the you know the audio from the Model D is going back in as the audio that it's going to convert. So if you have a frequency error, then it will kind of like drift around and it'll kind of try to follow that around. And, you know, I have, I have like some sub oscillators here and it's, I'm using all three oscillators. I was using all three oscillators from the model D for that, that voice. Um, so I don't know, that's fun. That's what I had the most fun doing when I went to trade shows is just like sitting there with a microphone and like just doing do 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 I can do 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 and you can tune in like and, you, know, you do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, I, at, at Nobcon, I got to play. Um, I got. I think you you brought a bass guitar and uh, and got to play. Uh, was it a Model D that you had there also? Yeah, I had the Model D and the Microcorg. Right. I used the Microcorg for MIDI to to convert audio to MIDI and and you know because it's it's just a small synthesizer. It's very popular and it's like I was thinking, what is the most compact, most widely recognized thing I can use to convert MIDI to to some cool synth sounds well and and i think one of the one of the big things is uh this conversion to synth is isn't anything new which you mentioned uh a lot earlier on uh but but many times it involves you know installing new hardware on your guitar or your instrument like a like a, a midi pickup or something like that yeah and 90 percent of the time the latency is awful especially for bass guitar and yours certainly wasn't yeah so I mean, it doesn't work for polyphony yet. If you want to do polyphony, then you have to install some kind of polyphonic pickups. So you, you want to have hex pickups and then some six wire interface. And you want to you know, have six instances of this pitch tracking thing going. And I believe people there are people that are working on that now um, without naming any names. Uh, but it's not me. I'm not like uh, that's that's kind of exactly what I was saying earlier. I I didn't want to be in that business of trying to decide what users wanted. I've I've talked to a, a handful of people about doing something like that with with guitar. Uh, the, the biggest problem with it is if you if you don't go digital with it, then you're exactly what you're saying. You have to have. Uh, a six coil pickup an individual per each string on the guitar and then you have to have the ability to get six individual signals out of the guitar and most yeah. guitarists would want that to be analog and and it yeah. ends up you're, you're having to uproot some basic functions of the guitar that have been around for decades and it y you would be alone in this sea of 
quarter inch cables with your special guitar that has a six or a seven conductor cable yeah. and it gets impossible real fast. Yeah, there's a lot of custom hardware that goes into it. And but there's a huge community of people that want to do this and they are happy to modify their guitar. And uh, I think it's kind of an expensive field, um, but, you know, there is an audience for it. Mm -hmm. There's if you look on Facebook, there's a group called SICFI, S-C-Y-C-F-I, um, and all of it's like all people that are interested in doing polyphonic guitar synth stuff. That's cool. I think that's not that the out. only one. There's there's other there's other communities of people into it as well. I think. So uh, I want to do a touch real quick on just the IC creation. We've talked a good bit about it as we've jumped around, but um, so I wanted to just ask, like, how did you go about designing these chips? What uh, what software did you use for that? Um, I looked around a long time for like a, a like a bargain a bargain uh chip design eda software um and a few years ago what i found was tanner tools um tanner it's like they were kind of a small company um based in california that they were providing an alternative to like the the industrial options like cadence synopsis mentor um, those are the big names that that everybody in kind of this kind of EDA field has heard. Um, and that was, you're able to basically lease the tools for a couple thousand dollars for a few months, or like, I mean, it was around something like around five to $10,000 for a year, so something around that. So you could design a chip in that time, like I, as one person, I could design a chip in a year. And it was, you know, it was a big chunk of, it was, it was, not cheap, I wouldn't say, but it's something that if you've saved some money, um, you know, it has something in the savings account, you could do it yourself, you could fund it yourself. Um, since then, unfortunately, Mentor Graphics has purchased Tanner Tools and they've completely changed the pricing structure. So that was another thing that was a huge bummer for me um, that using those tools became quite expensive and also why I was kind of happy to go down the path of of a firmware-based design. Um, now you're basically talking about $50,000 to lease those tools. And it's it's like not very different from the pricing that you could get with Cadence or some of those big industrial providers. Um, I've heard people have talked to me about like freeware chip design tools. So you can, you know, Spice is supposed to be free and you can find certainly find free Spice simulators but if you want to put everything together and have something where you're able to verify that schematic matches layout, that's the big thing, by the way, is that how do you how do you know that the layout you did is the same functionally as your schematic? If if you think you're going to do that by hand, you're out of your mind. It's like a <laughs> it's a huge thing that you need very specialized. And that's the software that really ends up costing money and that you can't get for free. And the other thing is that you need support. You need technical support to set up all set these things up because it requires a lot of IT expertise and setting up like network servers and stuff like that, which I didn't have the expertise to do. So I ended up shelling out a lot of money at some times to lease these tools and to get access to the support. And if I didn't do that, there was 
there was no other way I could have done it. So it's like, uh, I don't recommend actually designing your own ship unless you have a big budget for it and you really need to do something that is impossible to do otherwise. That's actually what I wanted to get into was um, your, your first couple designs were in silicon and then you moved to a firmware design. What changed that allowed you to do that? Uh, probably nothing. Probably I could have done the firmware design from the beginning. What changed was kind of my philosophy about it, where I thought finally, like, you know, I know how to make, for example, a digital version of an analog filter. You know, I took I took digital filters in university, and I know how to do bilinear transform and stuff like that. Um, and I, you know, it's something that I found always found fun and never really did that much in my in my professional career. So I was happy to to play with it. And uh, I knew some pro I knew some programmers, some embedded programmers uh, in Poland in Krakow. From you know, I I we didn't talk about this in the podcast, but I lived in Krakow for eleven years before moving to Miami about a year ago. And um, there's it's like a really great place for IT and for you know finding talent in I in IT web design programming. So I had I had you know friends there that were good embedded programmers and I told them the idea and they said yeah we can do it so we spent a few months on it and and uh, ended up working pretty well that's what you heard in that audio demo before it's that that digital firmware version controlling the the uh, model d and you know for people say oh you know analog digital you know you have these these steps you know you have a DAC with uh that that, that particular microcontroller has a 12-bit DAC. And if you read the fine print in the data sheet, it turns out that the performance isn't even really 12-bit performance. Um, it's really more like 10-bit performance. And, and it looks like, from the, if you read it carefully, it looks like the steps can actually you know, not even be monotonic in the 12-bit DAC. So I was thinking, okay, we really have a 10-bit DAC here. How do I make analog signals with that? Because the CVs that come out come from those DACs, and I used another technique from my from my you know signal processing, which is sigma delta modulation. Um, this is a way; it's a really you know decades old way that people use, and in fact, pretty much all of these twenty four bit audio DACs that you that you can buy now they're not really they're not really twenty four bit DACs. There's some lower resolution DAC that's being modulated where the, the code is being modulated very fast and it gets filtered. And what it looks like 24 bit, it looks like it's giving you 24 bit levels, but inside you you really don't have a 24 bit DAC. And so I did the same thing. I used the 10 bit DAC and I modulated the code and I low pass filtered it. And it's it's good enough to sound like an analog signal controlling these, these uh, these synths. So people should look up sigma delta modulation. It's really a really cool technique, and it's very simple. Uh, if you, you know, it doesn't take that much reading or math to understand how it works. It's it's basically you know to get. I can explain it simply. If you if you want to generate like a a code that's halfway between two two codes of your DAC. Basically, what you do is you switch really fast between the two those two 
you know, two codes, one LSP apart from each other, and you filter it. So you get a really high frequency square wave. Um, I don't remember. I think we were we were outputting it at 48 kilohertz because uh, we were using the same the audio sample rate for everything. And we just if you if you're generating a, a control voltage, if you low pass filter a signal that's that's changing, you know, at 48 kilohertz sampling rate, you're never going to hear that that uh, square wave. You know, you, you're going to filter it, and it's going to sound like a constant voltage. So you can you can buy yourself some more bits with code. Yeah, yeah, and basically you can because the microcontrollers usually work with 32 bits, so it's technically a 32-bit DAC if you want to be precise. Now it doesn't. Now does it get performance if you if you try to change the code by one LSB of 32 bits? Is it going to be like that? Are you going to measure that one microvolt or whatever it is? No, of course not. <laughs> now there. Now you're talking about like getting into the noise, the the thermal noise of resistors. So, it, but it's good enough for controlling your your Model D or Eurorack VCOs or anything. Now, because if you think about it, you have one volt per octave. Uh, one semitone is about eighty-three millivolts. So you have to have really, really high noise, even if your noise is like one millivolt, which is very high. So the noise is, is less than that. It's still pretty low when you convert it to frequency. Right. I, I, can't, I can't remember what I think it was. Um, the average human ear is capable of perceiving four cents of uh, pitch variation uh, in terms of tuning. And yeah. uh, and that that results in a still fairly high in control voltage, uh, higher than the noise yeah. for sure. Four cents would be about eighty three divided by twenty five. It's about three three and a half millivolts or so. Right. So as long as you're beneath that, you're be beneath the average human's pitch ability to or uh, ability to determine a pitch variation. Yeah. So Brian, what is next for second sound? So I, uh, I'm is it selling... going to be the 161 or <laughs> something. I, I am working on a newer version of the of the firmware based based pitch tracking stuff. So I'm also kind of fielding um, fielding video content from demo artists. I'm still doing that. I'm still expecting to release some some cool demo videos that show you know really good musicians playing with it because I'm. I'm an amateur musician. I'm I'm an engineer that happens to like playing keyboard and guitar, you know, just for for fun. Um, but I am excited about a new version of the of the uh, the technology I'm working on. The main thing that I'm going to add is uh, I will do a teaser for it. Um, I'm I want to add automatic gain control because that was one of the things that. Um, was probably my most frequent request from users. Uh, people don't like to have to tweak the gain setting for their instrument to get it. You know, sometimes it's hard to hit that sweet spot. Some instruments like uh, guitar or bass that have pretty low level signal, they require high gain around 40 dB or so. And uh, the way that the preamp is designed, if you tune it to a very high gain, it becomes very sensitive to the knob position. So. I want to basically I want to get rid of that preamp control altogether and I want the microcontroller to set the gain itself. 
So it's it's kind of a challenge. And I have uh, basically just in the past few days, I've I've kind of been polishing off a automatic game control kind of uh, algorithm that I hope will do it pretty well. Um, the other things are I'm thinking about making it uh, more enclosure friendly. So a lot of people have asked for an enclosure for the the evaluation kit because people can can use it at home. But if you talk about taking it to gigs, playing live with it, it's not like the most practical thing for that because it's a bare PCB on metal standoffs. And at the very least, it needs to have a solid base so that it sits like it doesn't slide around. I recognize that. And you know, I apologize to my users who have struggled with this. Uh, some people have been creative and and screwed it because you know you can get if you get screws of the right the right uh, diameter you can just screw them in from below the standoffs and you can mount it easily to something. But I didn't provide that kind of hardware with it. Uh, now you get into you know where where are the connectors supposed to go and the knobs supposed to go? <laughs> well, yeah, you have to be careful about designing everything that. You know, everything has to be the right height off the clearances all matter. And um, I I dealt with some of that with my work with Sonic Smith from before when we were designing those those uh, basically similar to this, but with enclosures. Um, yeah, you have to maybe panel mount some things because the the evaluation kit now it has a combo, it has a quarter inch XLR combo jack for the audio input because I wanted to be able to plug microphones directly into it. And that thing is a is a beast. It's like twice as tall as all the knobs. And it's, you know, it basically makes it impossible to put it in an enclosure how it is. So I would have to think about panel mounting some things and doing some wiring inside it. Um, I'd have to move around the MIDI jack maybe because the MIDI jack is on the side and the power and audio out jacks are on the back. So it's like, it's some mechanical design um, and I'm not positive how it will end up, but it's just, I would, I just want to say something I'm considering. Very cool. Let me see. I might get rid of the, the uh, high pass and low pass filters or just make them fixed because it has switches for high pass filter and low pass filter frequencies. And I found that it really doesn't, uh, I can set them to be wide open, like the I can tune the filters to give the widest possible bandwidth, and it doesn't really have any impact on the performance. I haven't really seen a case um, where I had to close the filters to reject some noise. Um, what else was I thinking to do? I don't know. If anybody has some ideas, I'm I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, where where can people find more about you and uh, and send you that information? I know there's another one. Some people requested it to to use a expression pedal. Some people want to use an expression pedal for the VCF frequency. Uh, that's really cool. You know, violin players or guitarists they don't have a hand free to turn a knob. So, you know that we we're all familiar with you know what why are expression pedals nice um there's a sustain feature where if you if you push a momentary switch to one side it, it will freeze the pitch and the envelope at wherever it wherever it is currently um that would be nice to have 
to be accessible from a pedal as well. Just like I was trying to minimize the clutter in my lab. So I didn't want to have cables. I already have enough cables on my, on my desks, on my desktop. So I was thinking, oh, another cable going to the floor and then more pedals. Why do I want to do that if I can just have a switch? So the, the uh, evaluation kit I designed is more of a proof of concept that shows, yes, you can do it. And in a product, you would, of course, make some other design decisions to make it more ergonomic for users. Right, right. Yeah, and a jack for just a standard um, 50K pot style expression pedal would be nice for sure. Yeah, that's easy to do. And, uh, you know, the only thing is with that that standard expression pedal interface, you have to be careful because somebody might plug in a mono cable to it. And I always worried about that. If you plug in a model cable, it basically shorts out the reference voltage. So you have to have a reference voltage that can be shorted to ground without damaging it. And that can be done, but it's just like you have to think about stuff like that. It, that that will happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a solution for that. It just requires another op amp and a resistor. Mm -hmm. uh, so people have different solutions. Some people use uh, like a resettable fuse. Um, I... You know, I like using the op amp if you if you don't mind paying for another op amp. Yeah, for sure. One that can sustain a continuous um, short output. Yeah, and you use a resistor to limit the current. So it's like, it's, you know, it, you can limit it to whatever current you want, a milliamp if you want. Right, right. Well, and the output... Um the uh, the output accuracy doesn't matter as much if it's already going to be warbled with someone's foot, you know? Yeah, and you can even make it accurate if you want by using feedback in the op-amp. There's, there's ways to make a DC accurate um, circuit that's short circuit protected. Mm -hmm. um, I use that. I use that on actually on this evaluation kit for the pitch CV out. Um, the pitch CV out because pitch is really important because you want it to be, you don't want it to, the DC accuracy is very important, uh, no matter what load you put on it. So if you put a 100K or a 10K even load on it, you don't want that to affect the, the uh, pitch voltage output. So I use a feedback circuit and, a, and an op amp to make the DC uh, value independent of the, of the load. Mm. And it requires some compensation. It needs to be, you have to do some tricks, but it's, it's, those are well-known tricks in op-amp circuits. Well, great. Um, where can people find out more about you and, uh, what, uh, what's a way that they might be able to give you some, uh, some of those, uh, hints like you were asking for. So definitely visit my website, secondsound.com. Um, there's contact info there, or you can use the contact form. Um, you can look at my YouTube. Uh, I mean, the website has links to every, all the other social medias, the Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Um, those are the those are the big social medias that I'm on. I'm not I haven't been on any others. Um, it's enough for me to keep up with those three. Uh, and definitely like my Facebook. You know, I don't have that many. I don't have that much of a following on Facebook because I think because I'm not really making end user products. I'm more of like a technology provider. Um, but 
I definitely love to talk to users and people have written me and asked questions. So, you know, message me on Facebook, write to me from the website, whatever you, you can even use, use instant message, direct messaging on Instagram. I've seen all, you know, all kinds of contacts. Very cool. Uh, Thank you, Brian, for coming onto our podcast and discussing chip design and firmware control and oscillation. Yes, thank you for hosting me. Uh, it's been a pleasure for me. Well, great. With that, would you uh, like to sign us out? That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Brian Kaczynski. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.